0: hey guys welcome back to the revive stronger podcast i'm your host as always steve hall and today i'm interviewing the one and only Menno henselman's we talk a bit about his recent bulking and his recent injury and then we get into your questions and as always it's a fantastic chat with Menno. and just a little reminder we are an online coaching business that is how we make our moolah and how we put food on the table We do have coaching spots available right now, so if you're interested in online coaching with the Revive Stronger team, definitely check the online coaching link that's gonna be in the description and you can book yourself a consultation. But without further ado, let's get into the chat with Menno. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Menno on the show again for a QA. and uh, a Very excited to dig into this. And actually, I always, I don't know if we did, no, we did do this last time. It's something I'm doing with people that come on regularly. And by this time, Menno, you've been on the show so many times. Um, people know who you are and they're probably interested in what you're up to, especially because you're not the same kind of individual in the space as me where I'm like sharing my training and like all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Although Mike does it. You're a bit similar to Mike, but you're a little bit more hidden and private with this sort of thing. So mm-hmm. um how is everything going? I think last time you were massing, I don't know if you've continued that or if you yep. entered a cut. Still,
1: uh, this, Still just in a mini cut, not just went back into massing. And um pretty pretty steady overall. Um I had some setbacks though. Uh, one one big one is that I tore my quadratus lombora which uh, is, I've I recall correctly, the same injury that took crack knuckles out of the gym for three years. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it's not too bad, as long as I don't squat or deadlift. But i it uh, took a long time to diagnose. It's a really weird, persistent injury. Is this on in your foot? No, it's in, the, in your back. It's oh, like the... If these are the erector sp- uh, spinae around the spine, and then you have sort of the small, uh, yeah, small little helpers next to it. And that's the Coratus Lomborum, and this one is fooked. <laughs> so, uh, or that's most likely what it is. Do that?
0: Was that? Yeah, that, the that's gym? the thing.
1: Total freak accident. Uh, I had just done Romanian deadlifts, heavy Romanian deadlifts, no issues. It's uh, some bicep curls or whatever, no issues. Then I then I started dumbbell bench pressing, and halfway through the set, I hear like, bah! and I I felt my back. I was like, but it didn't feel like. Too bad and i was like I'm, I'm bench pressing like nothing could have happened you know and I'm, I'm lying on a bench so i continued the set and didn't make it worse or anything and for like 30 seconds i was like Pfft. i first thought it was like you know when you you have a joint or something that snaps back into place only this time it was in your back and i was like it's not the spine which is odd i thought it may be a spine attachment or something and then actually the rest of the day i was sort of fine and this the next morning i woke up a little bit of pain, but then when walking, really bad. And I've now had it already, it took a long time to diagnose and figure out what the hell it was. The symptoms are so weird. Uh, like it radiates to the front. And um now I have it reasonably well under control, but have a spotter that lifted in like two months. So I'm gonna be curious to see what that does. I did notice my endurance tanked. So I'm actually doing uh bicycling sprints or like one sprint at the end of every workout just to maintain some cardiovascular endurance is it's crazy how fast that deteriorated and um i can train everything um i can funny enough i can do back extensions like maximum effort back extensions crunches and stuff i could not do at first but now i am and i'm doing actually doing core training now because it's the, the only um training i can do for my core but that's the funny thing right sneezing coughing crunches back extensions no issues walking out. <laughs> so i basically uh it's, it's it's really odd actually i had a, to get a wheelchair to, get oh, to wow. sao follow here yeah because uh international travel is a disaster because i have to stand in, in line for like an hour walk at the airport for an hour and that's really bad i can basically i can walk for five minutes zero pain nothing after five minutes it gets worse and then if i keep walking it gets really bad so i first it's especially the first phase and that's why this injury i've Talk to a few people is so annoying and persistent, especially at first phase when it's still very sore. I'm just past that. Everything aggravates it. Like showering aggravates it. If I brush my teeth too long in the shower, it got worse. So it's like, I mean, other than complete bed rest, it's really, really difficult to rehab this type of injury. So, but now I'm past the initial stages and I can bicycle. (laughs) Again, right? I, I can bicycle basically... And endlessly, not an issue. Walking, painful. Sitting upright without back support. This, this chair does have back support, although you can't see it. Also, I cannot do. So it's it's just really weird. And uh, also, when for example, when I go to the gym and I need to, uh, here I need to have some registration problems. In Brazil, everything is a bureaucratic nightmare. So then I, during the registration process, I have to lean on the counter. Because I can only stand for like five minutes. So I have to constantly be hunched over the counter
0: and they're just like what's this guy doing
1: (laughs) yeah exactly and and so for certain things i appear like highly disabled (laughs) but then i can do like bulgarian split squats back extensions and everything maximum efforts no issues but again i do have to sit in between periods with back support or lie down but in the gym funny enough it's actually perfect because very often especially during full body workouts you're lying down sitting down or doing exercises, at least not standing. So in it, for my workouts, it's actually not an issue, but when you can't walk for more than five minutes, you do suddenly realize how often you do need that. Like,
0: <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I can't even, I was, that's why I was thinking when I, I didn't quite hear where it was and actually I haven't, it's not a muscle you hear very often. <laughs> like, no, it's just not a common, you don't really train it, <laughs> you can't see it.
1: It's super deep. So it's also impervious to any kind of massage or manual release or whatever. So a really, really annoying one.
0: <laughs> it's kinda of, that's why I was thinking maybe it was in the foot, because I can imagine something being do know torn mm. or ruptured in the foot would be a nightmare. Uh or like, yeah, like in the I guess yeah. the back is very similar in that everything's supporting through the back and the spine. But I yep. guess luckily you weren't trying to diet at that period of time. Would you have cut would you have stopped to diet if you were dieting?
1: Mm, maybe. I don't think, especially during the early stages, it makes a big difference. Uh, I'd have to see, like, because you do need to get past that initial stage where everything aggravates it. Maybe I would have built them, but there's something we don't have a lot of research on, the effect of energy balance on connective tissue protein balance. We do know it affects muscle protein balance, but I think for an injury, it won't be as bad. If you think of open heart surgery, for example, I don't think it's going to make a big difference or a good, actually, probably best thing we have research on is uh, a fetus, like a a child growing in a mother's womb or breastfeeding. If you're cutting, based on most modern research, early research thought it was really bad, but most modern research, especially if you have some fat to lose, finds it doesn't compromise growth of the fetus. So, um, like you don't want to go into contest prep or anything, obviously, but. The body prioritizes things that are more important quite effectively. And a fetus or like a torn muscle, I think, would score much higher than, uh, you know, muscle mass or something. So I think your your body would actually even maybe lose muscle at the expense of trying to keep protein balance high in the torn ligaments or something. Plus, ligaments and whatever. This is a muscle, I think. But um, because it's hard to diagnose, you also can't see it well in ultrasound. It's like, (laughs) but anyway. I think the body will prioritize the more uh, important things and things that are damaged. So, I'm actually curious. I would, this is something that we need research on. Like, how does energy balance affect connective tissue protein balance? I don't think it's going to be a big effect, especially now if it's a, a big injury. Because it's, yeah, the body will prioritize it. But, you know, it can be good either to cut while you're injured.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting, actually, because you mentioned that there. And that is one of the arguments I normally make in my, uh, and I think I see commonly said is like, if you're injured, if you're in a deficit, mm-hmm. you're going to slow that recovery process. And then other arguments I would say are like, I don't know, for you, you can walk. So like your energy expenditure just suddenly drops so much. So mm-hmm. it just makes dieting harder. And then if you can't kind of, uh, stimulate certain muscles, because just all exercises are off the table, then that's a reason
1: aside where you may be mis- risking muscle loss if that continues for a while. Yeah. I do think either, either way you have to be closer to maintenance. You don't want to either bulk or cut aggressively, especially if your training is compromised. Because it it goes both ways, right? You can't cut aggressively because you'll lose muscle if you can't train effectively. On the other hand, you also can not bulk because you'll just get fat. So you have to be closer to maintenance. I think that's actually a good general rule of thumb. The more optimized your training, nutrition, everything is, the more aggressive you can be while cutting and bulking. And the more compromised everything is, the closer you have to be to maintenance.
0: I think that's so well said because it's something you're not often talked about. It's like people talk about like rates of gain, rates of loss and it's mm-hmm. all under the assumption normally I think that people are doing right. things well but <laughs> so when people, people exactly. are completely screwing things up like their sleep for example like then ooh, maybe you want to be in a small surplus or maintenance trying to gain muscle because you're just already compromising. Although then you're kind of like burning the candle at both ends or something, aren't you? Because it's like, well, now you're <laughs> like not even supporting it with a big enough surplus. It's Just like, yeah, and, just and do so things really so well. <laughs> For sure. Um, and then actually a yeah, second question I had, because I'm just interested and I don't know if this is something you even do, but we're kind of at the start of the year. We're still in January. Do you set goals for yourself like at the start nope. of the year? So it's not something you do. Okay.
1: It's uh, like any other day. I mean, maybe we have social events or whatever, but yeah, uh, any, anything, uh, Christmas, New Year's, all these things, other than that, you might do something fun. Uh, for me, is has no significance in terms of where I want to go. Like I'm a big proponent of having a growth mindset and just always striving for self-improvement uh, and not really being worried about where specifically you want to end up, rather just focusing on which direction you want to go. I think that's um, generally more important And in terms of actionable goals, you want them to be really actionable and concrete, like implementation intentions, your meal plan for the coming week, uh, what you're going to eat today, how much are you going to bench press, like how much you're going to put on the bar, how many reps are you going to aim for, this workout, these, you know, so you have, I think, The most practical mindset is that you have sort of very long-term directions where you want to go, which are more abstract. And then in the short term, you have very concrete goals. And I think the the sort of intermediate goals, uh, which are often called performance goals by psychologists, like I want to bench press 300 pounds. Those are often not really informative because, well, for one, will anything change when you bench press 300 or 305 or 310? and if your goal is 300 or if it's 400 it really doesn't matter how you're training now like it's it's going to be the same off right so yeah i'm a big proponent of having a growth mindset as carol dweck would call it i i like
0: that mentality a lot it's something i probably used to do because i used to think i needed to with particularly like in the gym like i want to hit this number by the end of the year mm-hmm. or what have you whereas now i'm just like i know every day i'm almost trying to do everything as best i can what I get to at the end of the year will be the best it can possibly be no matter what number that is going to be. So yeah, I kind of, I like that mindset. And also it's this, it's not very socially acceptable. It might be a bit more socially acceptable now, but the mindset of just like, I don't know, like your birthday or Christmas or new year, like it's just another day. Like you said, sleep's important Mm -hmm. and new years. I'm always like, ah, could really do with just going to bed at 10 <laughs> i don't really want to stay up but socially it's not the most acceptable yeah. thing um i reckon a lot of people can relate to that sort of mindset who listen to this show
1: <laughs> yeah actually i went to bed earlier as well because we just got to brazil uh funny enough there's this period between christmas and new year's when tickets are like almost free oh you, wow. I, you, you would think it's at least for for us in this case you would think it's sort of the whole holiday period it's more expensive but there was this massive surge before Christmas and before New Year, and then there were like three days in between when the ticket prices were like almost zero. So we're like, "We'll take that." Perfect. And uh, but then you arrive here and there's nothing to do and everything's closed, so it was almost like we were quarantined. Yeah. But uh, you know, that, that's fine for uh, for saving like a thousand dollars.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the world kind of yeah. It's a frustrate. Uh, it's probably a frustration of everyone, especially like lifters. When gyms just shut like, I don't know, however many days they end up shutting for around the kind of holidays period. And you're like, I may have more time than usual and I can't even go in and I'm eating more than usual as well.
1: It's odd too, most gyms opening hours are really based on uh, what economists would call supply side considerations. Like how much do you have to pay the employees? But I mean, on holidays and weekends, more people are free to train. So you would expect there's significant demands. And you do see that when gyms close at like four on Sunday, for example, then three to four it's really busy. Yeah. Probably because a lot of people would have wanted to go later, but go, you know, when they they at the last available option. So it I think a lot of gyms would actually benefit uh, from having opening hours more suited towards when people are actually free. Which is uh what was this thing? I think it was here in Brazil or something. Uh, or government agencies in general. like They're often open 9 to 5 or not even like 9 to 3. It's like, why? Everyone works those times. <laughs> like, Shouldn't government agencies be open like in like evenings and open early in the morning so that people can actually go to them and have a job? It's crazy.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, cool, we're getting to would questions. It help with traffic too,
1: by the way. Say that again, sorry. It would help with traffic too. Yes. If the whole yeah. government sector was open on slightly different hours in the corporate sector.
0: Uh, Definitely. I agree. So yeah, the first question uh, that had come in was from cyclist 5000. He asked, Mm -hmm. why do you train, assuming you do still seven days a week without rest days?
1: Well, I don't recommend really thinking of rest days, rather for one, it's more important to think of total accumulated volume over time and how you spread that across the week is definitely a secondary consideration. And two, it's not like there's something magical about, um, you know, the Gregorian calendar where a lot of things we like to think of week or day, but the body just perceives time. Like we recover over time. So there's, there's no need to have like a rest day. Like I rest 23 hours in between every workout, which is, you know, a ratio of one to 24. So it's very biased objectively in favor of resting over training and You know, if you, uh, yeah, there's simply no need for it. Like, there's also a lot of research showing that, if anything, higher training frequencies, given the same training volume, they improve the testosterone to cortisol ratio, which is some marker of recovery status. They can increase muscle activity levels during your workouts, which also tends to be associated with better recovery. And then, of course, the research showing, like a few studies showing better results, but other research showing when volume is equated doesn't make much of a difference. Uh, And one study showing lower RPEs, and some research also finds, like, the Norwegian um, One study found that if you're doing habitual workouts with high frequency, it might also improve your ability to recover from that workout. Although that might not be unique to high frequency training, but uh, workouts in general. But in that particular study, it was actually pretty extreme. They had well-trained lifters do uh, six sets per day of quad training. I think it was three sets of squats, three sets of leg presses, or two different squat variations, something like that. And first they tested how long it took them to recover from that workout. And it was at least over over 23 hours, I think it was. And then after a week or two weeks doing that every single day, so six sets per day for quads, which is intense, right? They tested it again, and then they recovered within 23 hours. So that, that's interesting that even when you think you can't recover from something initially when you're doing it as habitual training you might actually be able to i guess that
0: might allude to why when you start out maybe a training cycle over the future months you could potentially do with increasing your training frequency to spread the volume out a yeah. little more um, and I, I like your answer there because i think me including maybe this person and other people i always thought not having a rest day at least one day a week was like a necessity and Mm -hmm. then i i don't know when i revisited it a while ago it may have been because i saw you were training seven days a week i was like rationally i can't give a good reason like i can say like oh maybe psychologically you need it or oh, maybe just Mm -hmm. one rest day allows for extra like recovery because you're just not hitting your kind of ligaments and joints and things i'm like but I, I can't really think of a good reason why, because, like you said, if you spread the volume across the week, it may even be more effective for some people. Um, but now we're going to get loads of people yeah. being like, "I'm going to train seven days a week." <laughs> uh, do you I find- mean a
1: lot? A lot of bodybuilders have traditionally done seven days a week workouts too, but then it's like a bro split where they, they spread yes the, the you know the volume over different muscle groups. But often, even then, actually, you find that there is some overlap. So, many bro splits, they do actually train, for example, the arms three times a week and everything. In any case, yeah.
0: Yeah, and actually, it seems very popular. It seems counter to me. I don't know if you ever thought to this, Mano, but when I see a lot of kind of the, uh, I guess, some of the pros now, the really big, strong guys, they tend to have even like, I don't know, two, three rest days quite often. And I'm often thinking, surely spreading that volume over more days would be more effective for you versus having those extra whole days off the gym. I don't know if that's something you've ever thought about.
1: Yeah, probably. I would agree with that. I think (laughs) uh, many in like the top levels, they're still pretty stuck on traditions. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think in a sense it makes sense because especially with gear, there is so much we don't know scientifically. So if you have the coaches, I think at the top level, what's most important is people that can get good gear and um, know how to get someone in counter shape, like without getting a gut, because we don't really know what causes the, well, we call it growth hormone guts, but we're not really sure. So if you know those kind of things, and then actually your training knowledge and everything is pretty secondary. So That's of course, crazy. you know, you need people that train really hard, are really dedicated with their diet, you know, but probably your things like training frequencies were pretty low. On the list compared to the importance of the peak week uh gear usage etc
0: i guess that gives further reason why we have to be careful as natural athletes to because people yeah. talk about success leaves clues and they look at the most successful like if, i don't know ronnie coleman it's like eh, you're so far away from being ronnie coleman that it's almost right. not a useful clue apart from he trains hard maybe um, to to take from that and you're better looking at i don't know maybe some of the best naturals i guess but even then i guess you could argue well they could have top tier genetics and you don't so i guess take it and then yeah. like science take the science apply it tweak it as you see it in real time definitely
1: and just look at like a broad spectrum of athletes because things like if you tell uh, a lot of people would agree that high level gymnasts uh, many athletes have really good physiques as well. Yes. And the idea of a rest day there is actually really not that common. Like gymnasts often do full body workouts every single day. And that's just normal. And they also things like, if you tell them you can only work out for one hour, it used to be this myth that persisted really long in bodybuilding circles. And many people actually didn't do They have workouts like 90 minutes, but still, uh, that was sort of the idea because of cortisol and, um, if you tell that to gymnasts or many athletes, it's like two hours a day minimum, every day. <laughs> so you know, if you if you look beyond what often seems like everyone's doing this, but it's actually a niche of people that you're looking at, and those are doing that. Uh, in internet forums, you also really have that. When you think like everyone is doing this, it's like no, on this forum everyone is doing the same thing because of hurt mentality. But if you go to a different forum, you actually see that often they may think that that is ludicrous, and everyone does B instead of A.
0: Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. Yeah, I see those comments all the time where it's like, I don't know, all IFBB. I don't know. Someone might say like, why do you train with full range of motion and good technique when IFBB pros don't? I'm like. How do you know every single one doesn't? Because I could name a g- g- big handful who do. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, anyway. Um, well, so base
1: the, rates. Uh, well, actually, a common fallacy, humans are prone to is base rate fallacy. So we think like, well, most IFBB pros, they train with partial range of motion. And it's like, well, if you go to the gym and you just look at a commercial gym, then most people just train with partial range of motion. Because it's harder. You need good technique. You need uh, discipline to have full range of motion. Uh, it's more uncomfortable often, like to squat very deep. So most people train with partial range of motion, and it just shows that IFB pros are not a particularly uh, strong exception to that rule.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Very well said. Uh, next question. So the next one's from Dark Underscore Jimaholic. He says, "What's the simplest thing that comes to mind for advanced folks to do to improve significantly?"
1: Probably sleep more, because if you haven't already advanced your knee then I'd wager, you know, the basics of training, nutrition, everything are in order. But I think there are still a lot of people that don't have lifestyle considerations in order. I definitely used to be like that, where sleep was still something I didn't really prioritize, or at least not for physique purposes. But research on the importance of sleep is dramatic. You're looking at like 50% more muscle growth, or when dieting, for example, like 50% more muscle loss, 50% less fat loss with like one hour difference of sleep. We have like four studies on this, um, showing like really, really big differences with relatively moderate differences in how many hours per day someone sleeps. So I think for a lot of people, it would be like sleep.
0: For sure. What's, in terms of you, uh, Menno, in sleep, what's like one of the changes you made that made the biggest difference, would you say?
1: Uh, Just having an overall routine and uh, paying a lot of attention to it but probably just routine and everything. Um, And it really helped um, that I started living with Sama, now my fiancé, that it also makes it easier. I think when you're doing it both, sometimes it's harder when you have different routines. But if you both make efforts to stick to the same routine, then it's synergistic because you both reinforce each other's routine. So that also helped. But I I think I got my shit together when I was like 21. uh, I had really bad insomnia before that. Uh, and then I literally became like a different person, because you know, I went from sleeping like five hours on average per day to a solid eight, and it makes such a big difference.
0: yeah yeah, I think anyone who has kind of taken that transition and made sure they get good sleep whenever you get a, subs- like a substandard night of sleep you, you know you've had a substandard night of sleep yes sleep exactly before. that's
1: when you notice because when you're in that when you got what I call zombie mode, you don't notice any. And there's also research showing this, that when you're constantly being slightly sleep deprived, the actual objective sleep depth accumulates. Um, So eight days with one hour less sleep per day actually has the same cognitive effects, like how you mentally function. as a whole night of sleep deprivation, but you don't feel it as much. And at a certain point, you actually think you're stable, but you're just getting worse and worse. Like your reaction time just keeps going down. You don't feel it anymore. But if you're really well rested, just one day you don't sleep as well. You're like, oh my God, did I go through life like this before?
0: Amazing. Cool. Uh, that's a good answer. Uh, Brian Bornstein has asked a question. For rows slash pulldowns, what do you think about doing some partials in the lengthened position once you failed at full range of motion?
1: I think pulldowns, I'm not a huge fan because pulldowns have a pretty good resistance curve. Uh, like you don't have a really pronounced sticking point, uh, especially not if you use some momentum, um, which which I like for pull downs, full range of motion, but with some momentum. Uh, rows actually also like using momentum, like Arnold Schwarzenegger style rows where you lean over forwards and you actually involve the erector spinae. I think that's pretty safe if you, especially if you do high reps. You bend mostly from the thoracic, like the upper back, um, which is actually that's actually the only way I like doing rows if you're doing them also for the lats. And then I wouldn't say I would do partial reps because most research on post failure training and partial reps is both very, very unpromising. Like it shows big differences on fatigue, minimal differences on your gains. So the stimulus to fatigue ratio, is really bad. And um, um, so I, I wouldn't recommend that, but I do recommend for those types of exercises that people train a bit closer to failure or actually even to failure sometimes. Because I think failing a row is very different from failing a bench press. Like at a certain point of rows, you can't quite hit your body anymore with the implements or your hands, but you know you can still do a lot of reps just short of that. Whereas with a bench press, it's really like you're at some point, you're going to fail in a sticking point and then you're you're out. So I think the, the fatigue you accumulate with different exercises, uh, especially if there's a pronounced sticking point at the end, like with a row, uh, it's not as bad as with others
0: i really like this discussion because it's something i just heard uh charlie uh Zhang on the podcast mm-hmm. and we were talking about like they've got their team full rom and talking about like perfect technique and not using any momentum and i was like pro- proposing that for some pulling movements, some momentum actually makes a movement feel even better and so pull downs mm-hmm. and rows were two great like they're two exact examples where i was like just a bit of like a bit explosive, a bit powerful on the concentric just to get that end range where just yeah. strength completely drops off. You almost get that nice like prime row where you can selectorize where it, to the kind of strength profile where it drops off at the end where you're weakest. You kind of get that if you use a bit of momentum where you it kind of complements it. Um, but I guess you just have to be careful. And I don't know if this is something you learn, but I definitely can feel when it's kind of productive momentum versus just swinging things around. I don't know if you can speak to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's also at least one modeling study for like lateral raises, dumbbell lateral raises, showing that I think you get more total work done by the muscles if you use a little bit of hip swing, because otherwise you're just going to feel so horribly at the top that it's almost like an isometric, like you're only really stimulating the top. And you really want to stimulate the bottom as well, because that's where you get the most stretch mediated hypertrophy. Um, so if anything, the bottom is more important than the top. and If you use a little bit of momentum and you immediately, if you're using like a dumbbell for those ways, you immediately accelerate from the bottom. So you don't pause. Like you're going, you let the weight sort of drop and then immediately accelerate. You can actually, there's a recent paper showing that this, at least that the principle works. Um, It's sort of eccentric overloading. Because you're using the momentum from the weights coming down. And you have to not only get the weight up, but you also have to. I not even mean, sure, the technical term sort of re or uh, reverse, I guess, just reverse the movement, which is more effortful than letting it stop and then just lifting it up. So I think that you can actually get some eccentric overloading and stimulate different parts of the movement and just get more total work done for a smoother um, net strength curve, essentially.
0: Yeah. And would you say this is something, if someone's trying to implement, like using a bit of momentum in some of these movements, it's something you can feel like, does it feel like you're just swinging around or does it feel like you're getting like you know more pump disruption my muscle connection in that muscle group
1: yeah it should it should if anything feel better, not yeah. worse and a good um you need control over the movement that's also important like I think uh, a general good rule of thumb is that you should be able to pass the movement if you wanted to at any point uh if you're just like letting it drop or you're like dive bombing down in a squat it's like could you stop No, probably not <laughs> it's uh from here on it's all in. Uh, then it's like, yeah, that, you probably have no eccentric contraction whatsoever. So and I think that's a good rule of thumb to, to maintain some control. And um, I think you, like re- reversing the lateral is I think most people also feel it more in their delts. Uh, I'm not a big fan of relying on subjective measures, but in this case, um, I think it, it has some merit. Like if you feel it less, with your cheating or using momentum that's a good indication it's probably not the right kind of
0: cheating yeah i think maybe you'd agree with this like a good coach if you were to send them a form video they can kind of see what looks like productive oh, yeah, work versus just like slinging if they can't see it themselves
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely for sure yeah.
0: and that is a question i've just been reading up on um brad schoenfeld's book max muscle plan 2.0 he mentions mm-hmm. in there, in one of his phases, uh, centric overload training. And this is something I've never implemented myself. You brought it up just there or something similar. Is that something you implement in training at all where you like purposely? I'm a big fan of that, actually. Okay.
1: Yeah. I think uh, the research has been promising from the start on that. And there's more research. If anything, the research, the last research is less promising than what we had like a couple of years ago. The only question is, how do you implement it? and. Like I said, this recent paper shows um, that you can use it with reversing movements. And another way you can do it is by using momentum in general with like a calf jump or uh, a pull down. If you're leaning back during the concentric, so while you're putting the weight down, then you're basically using the hips and potentially the spine to assist with the concentric. But if you're controlling the eccentric, then you don't get that help anymore. So effectively you're eccentric overloading. Right. So the use of momentum strategically with a controlled eccentric often results in eccentric overloading in practice. And then you have like some more niche applications like saltman curls or um doing chin-ups and then switching to a pronated grip at the top before you go down. But it's like often makes it very difficult to monitor progressive overload. So I recommend those things only for like accessory exercises, not the, the main benchmark lifts.
0: Yeah. Uh, Brad brought up one of the exercises he said was like, you could do leg extension with both legs and then just right. do one at a time or something. So, yeah, very cool. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, that's also like, I, I do sometimes use that, but it's also, <laughs> when you do it a few times, it really feels like you just can't like, um, you know, that the feeling, especially leg extension, really as you could just go all in and um, just get really good squat stimulation because it's not a very technical exercise um but when you have to sort of pause at the top and the tops also in many machines very difficult so you actually get a bit of too much overloading at the top often which can stop people bother their knees so it's I've tried it a few times i'm I'm fine of it in principle but i find in practice like eh, many people don't like it i'm also i'm on offense about it
0: it's not something i've tried but I can see even thinking about it when you said it there, Yeah, it does seem like maybe a bit tricky to implement, but it sounds like maybe some people are already doing it. Cause I'm thinking with the lat downs that is how I mm-hmm. like performing them almost uh, without thinking yeah. about it. So people might with be doing it. With pulldowns,
1: it's perfect. Cause then it's like a little bit of eccentric overloading. With the leg extension, you basically go for 100% eccentric overloading. Yeah. You know, cause you're, you're doubling the weight essentially, or you're putting the weight that you could lift for both legs on one leg.
0: And I guess... I don't know i'm just thinking the eccentric is normally the very damaging portion of the movement you mm-hmm. have to be quite careful if you are going to start throwing it in it's like
1: yeah it increases neuromuscular fatigue um in, probably in proportion to the extra work done is essentially you're stronger doing eccentric movements or contractions um so you're basically just capable of doing more work and that's probably also the main reason you just grow more muscles are just producing more tension and as a result they also develop more neuromuscular fatigue so you have to be a, a bit sparing with it and uh, you can not just make a whole program as normal and then switch everything to eccentric overloading that would be most likely too much
0: he actually also had another more advanced technique which was uh, loaded stretch training so like holding mm-hmm. like a dumbbell in a stretch position for like 10 to 30 seconds again very damaging um w- along the same sort of lines is that something you ever
1: use um I've looked into it. There's also something called serial stretch loading, which is uh a really uncommon technique where you sort of do micro movements. It's similar, it's like you're doing um um like if you're doing a fly, then you're sort of going down um say five inches, think up again two inches. Five Sounds down two, up two. <laughs> Yes. And then at some point you just sort of collapse in the fully stretched yeah. position. Um I'm actually, I would be a bit more fan of that because it's not isometric contraction. Right. So if you're doing a full stretch in like a dumbbell fly, then for one, it's an isometric contraction, which we know doesn't generate as much muscle growth as uh, dynamic contractions. Uh, and B, it's, you know, you're really overloading the most injurious position, which is also uh, a risk factor. And C, I find that often because you're going close to failure, sometimes post failure with these things. There's a big temptation to sort of let the connective tissues take over and just sort of relax
0: it into it yeah
1: yeah and then it's extra uh injurious so not not a big fan of that um i do think in terms of isometric training and stretching and whatever that is probably the best uh, of all those things but um also not a big fan in practice
0: don't know if it was like footsie seven or something fst7 might have had like loaded stretching i don't know if that's that's like a popular program i think it may yeah there was
1: there were a few programs like that it was very hip to have like three letters and then a number
0: (laughs) and i guess maybe some might argue and i might have heard mike say this where you are using like a full like a lot of people don't use full range of motion so if you're using a full range motion you kind of get that stretch under load and maybe you don't need to and if you pause it maybe for a a few seconds on some lifts maybe you're getting some benefit benefit there and you're kind of again you're depending on how you lift you might be getting some of these benefits without knowing it not programming for it specifically it's just you lift like that because that's what seems productive for you
1: yeah definitely i think that's an area where future research is going to tell us with stretch mediated hypertrophy is more better or is there like a point where you're sort of you get a good stretch and it's fine or do you really need that really maximal stretch? Do you need to overload the stretch? Is that still better? Uh, That's something we just don't have any research on. Yeah.
0: Yeah, particularly with, and you were talking about the injury, when you were talking about the fly I'm thinking like, especially when people come deep on that, that's where sometimes Mm -hmm. it can feel a little bit iffy. So I can definitely see how it could lead people the wrong way if they try and rely on it too much. Um, Perfect. So we're going to the next question from Seelen underscore Baker. This is a very, very broad uh, question, um, but I thought I'd throw it in here just because it has become very popular and I don't know if you've seen it. Um, He says, thoughts on the whole biomechanics. He said, fad. My opinion is I don't necessarily think it's a fad, but uh, I do find it interesting that biomechanics has become very popular, at least it seems, in my social media.
1: I don't know if you've seen that Mm -hmm. as well. Well, I mean, Yeah, that's a broad question. Because (laughs) biomechanics is, I think, extremely useful. I do think a lot of people, uh, and this is not necessarily new or maybe reinvigorated recently, but there are a lot of people who sort of implement biomechanical explanations at the expense of everything else. And that's just like EMG data. Um, Like if you just care about biomechanics, and you're just like "Ah, EMG data, we're going to ignore all of that. I don't think you will reach the best conclusions. I think you should look at biomechanics, physiology, you know, research in human metabolism, EMG research, uh, MRI research, all different fields, direct empirical studies of how much muscle people gain with different exercises. You should use all of that to combine what you think are like optimal exercises. Um, I do think biomechanics probably scores high on that list. And you'll do pretty well if you really understand biomechanics well. Um, just based from that. But actually, the funny thing is biomechanics is sort of a prestige of being more scientific than uh, empirical data, like actually just measuring muscle growth in the subjects EMG research, because it's you can mathematically quantify it, like you can calculate the force factors, joint moments. Um, but actually, it's so complicated, that we're really not at the point yet where we can actually say how much mechanical tension a muscle is producing during a movement. You need a lot of assumptions to make like three dimensional models that even come close to doing these things. And so even if you're, you're really understanding the biomechanics, it's not as scientific as, uh, as, as we would like to think we're, we're not there yet.
0: Perfect. Nice. Well answered. Uh, so Barry Acklin has asked, uh, what's the lowest sustainable fat intake? Which I guess is Um, if individual, but if we take the psychology out of it, maybe, and just look at like the human, what can we survive on? If
1: we say like lowest sustainable, I would say like maybe 10%, uh, but I would err on 20% really quickly. Like I'm very hesitant, especially women, to go below 20% fat. Um, I think you'll get into appetite problems. It's, It's sort of a trap because it feels nice at first where you get more volume in. But then over time, I found that um, you just get this insatiable appetite um, very often, especially if you go like zero fat. It's great for like two weeks, and then things go downhill. Um, so at like late-stage contest prep, I could see it because you know it's going to be over in two weeks, and then it's like, okay, well, fat's benefits are more like long-term, so just like caffeine. And like last two weeks, just you can go all out on the caffeine, and then later off, you can um, go into withdrawal because it's not yeah. as bad afterwards anymore, you know? So uh, th- with those caveats in mind, I'd say like 20% you generally don't want to go under. Even between 20 and 40%, there are significant differences on hormonal health. So if you go below 20%, your hormonal health will definitely be compromised. There's something to be said that enhanced trainees may be better off or they have less to fear from going super low in fat. And anecdotally, it does seem to be the case. Like people on gear are more likely to go low um, um, low in fat. And I'd say overall, if you look at the history of bodybuilding, low carb diets have been very popular at many different times, very often. Um, and it's, you know, since the 90s or so, with uh, drugs becoming a lot more prevalent, that high carb diets became, and especially the uh, basically zero fat contest prep diets, became a lot more popular. I think there have been very few cases in history where almost zero fat diets before the drug era were really popular. So yeah, probably 20% if you need one number.
0: And that's, is that 20%, I guess, of
1: calorie intake? Yeah, of total daily energy intake. It's like, you would like to set it to body weight, but especially when, when you have to make this decision, it already implies you're low on calories and you have to compromise on something. So if I tell you like, I would like your fat intake to be 80 grams or like one gram per kilogram of body weight. Uh, And it's like, you don't have those calories, then it's not an informative number, right? So you still need uh, to to compromise on something. You could say at that point, I go ketogenic, but that's a consideration, but it's obviously not for everyone. Hi guys, Steve
0: here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. And then I'm always interested because I do see people, uh, I've always set when I'm kind of providing myself macros or a a client, I do tend to use protein based off body weight, fat based off body weight, and then kind of like carbohydrates make up the difference. Mm -hmm. Do you like, is that ideally how you like to set macros or do you use a percentage base?
1: Yeah, I I use percentages, but ideally, I think if we have more research, because all research uses percentages, I think, we have more research and data yeah. um and i know that like Alan aragon has also done a lot of research on sort of converting percentages to grams per body weight um i think that's a completely valid approach uh, it's just that percentages are probably easier especially when you get to like what's the lower limit yeah. because if you just don't have the calories you could say the lower limit is 50 grams but yeah you just can't consume it you just don't have the calories but if you say 20%, you can always do that because even if you're really low on calories, you can still do 20%. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Uh, the next question is from, uh, T Theo 4833. And he says, what supplements do you take? Or she, uh, it, it depends on the
1: he. <laughs> uh, melatonin is, is very consistent because hey, my insomnia is mostly caused by not producing enough melatonin and melatonin for me is like a wonder drug. Um, and then the rest is basically, uh, I stopped bothering with creatine, maybe I should use it, but I really think I'm a basically complete non-responder. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a big tub, you know, like I have all my belongings in two suitcases, so uh, big tubs of powder often don't uh, match with my uh, itinerary. Uh, I have vitamin D, if I don't get enough sun, I have magnesium citrate, if I don't get enough, if I go low carb, I typically don't get enough magnesium. Uh, zinc um that's it i think i have vitamin c but it's like in the, the one in a million times that i'm ill um that's it
0: nice i think that's very similar to me apart from my take also creatine <laughs> that's why i don't oh, yeah. have as much hair as you uh it's all the it's all the creatine you can get creatine mm. uh people will be thinking oh, come on you can get creatine like capsules or pills or whatever if you, but if you think you're a non-responder, then I mean, <laughs> I've tried a few
1: times. There. I get nothing. I get, I get no, uh, I get no digestive issues. I get no, uh, no increase in body weight, like zero. I notice nothing in my work capacity. I can chuck down 20 grams of creatine without issues. It's just like it all passes through. <laughs> there's, uh, there's nothing that happens basically. So, uh, I've basically stopped bothering. I mean, you need quite a lot, right? Because theoretically, I would probably be close to five grams. Um, So you actually do need, even if you take capsules, it's a lot of capsules. Yeah,
0: it is. Uh, What was I going to say? I had a thought, oh, it was uh, melatonin, just out of, like, here in the UK, it's not easy to get. Like, you have to either, I think, maybe you can get it on prescription, but normally you have to order it in from, like, somewhere in Europe. But I was, like, in the us i went to vegas at the end of last year uh, competing and it was just like it was even in stores in vegas like just melatonin on the shelf right. and i was like this is just crazy like in all different forms not forms but like amounts i was i
1: was impressed the, the legal status of melatonin is an absolute crime against humanity in especially in countries like sweden how on earth you literally have no daylight during parts of the year in (laughs) all of the country how on earth do you expect people to manage their biorhythm like melatonin is there is an abundance of research showing it's completely safe up to inordinate amounts it's not really prone to abuse because it has no psychogenic effects it's it has profound health benefits it's also been shown to aid people with fat loss so it could theoretically be used in obesity treatments it has so many different health benefits, excellent safety profile, and it's illegal in many places. In fact, in other places, they allow it only in small doses. So you can buy it, but not at a dose that's effective, or you just have to spend more money. Because I think in Vienna, it's like you can buy two, gra- two milligram tablets. And it's like, oh, fine, I'll take the two milligram. I'll just take free. You know, it's like you're not stopping anyone by doing that. All you're doing is forcing people to consume more capsule. And spend more money which is completely inefficient and if anything probably not good to so so many capsules i don't think it matters but uh, it's just absolutely insane um and it's actually it's it's sort of flip-flopped because i when i first had insomnia and i was a child melatonin was also illegal in the netherlands and i was actually prescribed by a doctor doctor person that pretended to call himself a doctor (laughs) 0.1 microgram melatonin wow (laughs) and he was supposedly an actual actual doctor not a homeopathic doctor like at this point i <laughs> i'd be inclined to uh to write a letter like revoke this man's medical license this <laughs> is a homeopathic doctor that is not a medical dosage like it, it does nothing <laughs> so yeah absolutely absolutely insane and there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of substances like that that are yeah. super useful blood pressure medication in, a lot of, in a lot of, uh, places too. All you're doing is you're giving doctors enormous control over people, uh, over people's lives. So they need to go through these systems, spend a lot of money, uh, and then the insurance companies and everything mess up the system, it's really expensive. Drives up healthcare costs. Just, yeah,
0: really Agreed. annoying. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask, you, people will be interested, what's your kind of, do you take it every day? What's the dose? What time do you take it?
1: Three to five milligrams, 30 to 60 minutes pre-bed. That's basically the rule of thumb for most people. Over 5 milligrams melatonin, if you have to take more than that, there's something really wrong. And generally doesn't work. A meta-analysis found that 5 does generally work slightly better, probably because some individuals than 3. Basically, if your rhythm is really messed up, then you take 5. Most people, 3 is as much as you need. Um, Some people have the side effect that if they take way too much, then they wake up at some point later at night so don't use more than you need and yeah 30 to 60 minutes you can just go sort of go by feel i actually like 30 minutes because i sort of when i that's when i start feeling it and then i immediately go to bed and i sleep if i take it 60 minutes pre i sort of get tired after 30 minutes and then afterwards if i push myself over that uh it's sort of gone yeah. and i'm not sleeping anymore but some people they sleep easier so.
0: Have you ever tried the slow release melatonin that's come out?
1: Yeah, I don't notice much difference. Um, it helps me sleep less easily. Um, and I have no issues with staying asleep. So right. for me, it doesn't really do much. I think it's uh, worth trying, although there's not much research showing it. It really helps with that because melatonin doesn't really help you with sleep quality or help you stay asleep. It really just helps you fall asleep.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, I'm. I've played around with melatonin and I tried the slow release one hoping in contest prep, it would help me sleep through better, but mm-hmm. it just, it, it just made my sleep feel a little bit off. Um, right. I think it was L-theanine that had the biggest impact on my quality of sleep during
1: prep. Um, I find uh, magnesium citrate 200 to 400 milligrams can also really help. Yeah. Even if your magnesium intake is pretty decent, if you consume it with the last meal of the day, uh, probably because of the effect on the GABA receptors it sort of knocks you out many people also have the side effects slash effects some people like it some people don't well, very intense dreaming
0: I've never I don't think I I've had magnesium I use biglycinate which I've had for a long long time um, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I notice the effect on my dreams I think I'm it's you'll probably agree with this I imagine people are very individual on how they sleep and what they need and what kind of helps and what doesn't help. Uh, because initiating sleep for me is like mm-hmm. a sitch. Like I, melatonin doesn't really help. But like other things do help. So yeah, it's it's always very interesting when talking about sleep.
1: <laughs> yeah. The thing with sleep is also that when you start um I generally don't help people with sleep until they have problems. Because yep. sleep optimization can actually backfire. Yeah. If there's nothing to optimize, you start thinking of you know, I need to sleep on my sleep quality and that itself generates stress, which disrupts sleep quality. That's also why I'm I'm not a big fan of monitoring for one, the the apps that monitor sleep quality really aren't very good. Uh, And secondly, by monitoring it, uh, really, you just need to know, do you wake up naturally feeling well rested at a relatively consistent time of day? And just how many hours total do you sleep Um, based on that? That's, that's pretty much, you could do like the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index if you want something pro. But that's basically what I, it's like a 50-question version of what I just said. And um, uh, the, the apps, they don't really do much. In in, pro, in part because the most important thing to measure sleep quality is uh, polysomnography uh, and the brain waves in particular. And the, you know, a watch or something, it measures like your heart rate and maybe wrist movement. But you can just deduce that even a priori, like, how could you infer, how much can you infer about someone's brain activity based on their wrist movement and their heart rate? Like, it's it's very finite, you know? So yeah. for most cases, uh, I'm not a fan. Some cases, uh, it can help, but...
0: Yeah, this is something uh, I've spoken with Greg Potter. Um, he's been on the podcast many times. He has a PhD PhD in sleep. He's like my go to guy, and several mm-hmm. times I've been eager to be like, I'm gonna get an aura ring because it just seems like I should get one. And he's just like, No, it's not gonna it's not gonna provide you anything you need. So like, it's just an expensive ring at this point, <laughs> right? Uh, I cool. generally agree with that <laughs> yeah uh, we'll get to one more question then uh this is from Marcus Gaville unless this is quick he said should one do cardio in a bulking phase for optimal gains
1: definitely not if anything you should avoid it because of the interference effect um I know that there are some people that say like yeah actually the interference effect is a myth and even a recent paper and meta analysis concluded that uh I think it's it's honestly insane and I don't think it's one of the um like there are many studies showing endurance training disrupts strength development and muscle growth and some other studies showing no effect if you look at what separates the studies there's a very clear delineator training status untrained individuals i mean it's a, it's it's um it's very telling that even in untrained individuals sometimes there's an interference effect. but there was an earlier review paper it actually concluded during the first four weeks of training or something, bicycling and strength training resulted in equal muscle growth. And that was all based on completely untrained individuals with very short duration studies. Because if you get an untrained individual to do anything, they will grow. And it doesn't really matter yet what they're doing. It's such a general adaptation process at that point. That you know, in most studies, there have been a few longer term studies as well they see that the interference effect only starts manifesting after eight weeks. So basically, any study that has people that haven't been training strength training at least eight weeks, you can disregard. If you do that, then the literature is quite strongly, like it's either bad or neutral. So I'd say any leads of recovery resources, uh, it can interfere with training acutely if you're not recovered or if it causes CNS fatigue, you're doing a lot. So you know, there are ways to implement cardio without it being negative, but there's to my knowledge, not a single way to implement it with being positive, especially not more positive than just doing more strength.
0: Yeah, I think that's very well said. It has it, I do see it's quite a popular thing for people to do cardio in their gaining phase. And to me it it never really made sense. So, like you're kind of taking yeah. away reserves that you could put towards training, and especially because some people will do like hit and it's like, well, like you said, if you're doing your squats, your deadlifts, big compound lifts, that is in its own way, cardiovascular, it's just kind of the heart pumping and is working if you're doing more volume and you can do that because you're not doing your cardio, like there mm. you're getting all that hard work as well. So I think maybe some people just, I maybe they get too big in their off season and that's where that kind of starts. Yeah, tanking. I mean,
1: I, I could see it in like heavyweights, powerlifters, maybe bodybuilders on gear that get cardiovascular issues. Um, if you have like really bad trend cough or something, you know, maybe the cardio helps offset that. Um, but it's, it's more like your health so bad that maybe the cardio is needed to, you know, offset things. And even then you could say, well, maybe you should just do more high rep work, work on shortening your rest intervals. And that probably will have an even more direct benefit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. Uh, there's a quick question here. If you go, it's always quick. It's from geez, two, three, four, he said arm size question mark. Do you know your arm size menno
1: <laughs> I actually don't know. It's not they're not that big. Uh, I know that. They were I know that that when I measured them um years ago, it was same size calf, arm and uh neck. So uh that's what I do know. But I think they're like 17 max probably sixteen sixteen and a half inches or so I think. So that's quite big. I think that I think the, the what you should be striving for is um twenty. <laughs> <laughs> no, no no that they're the same size. Like in most natural <laughs> most natural lifters, um they should be approximately the same size. So like your next good indication of how generally speaking, your next good indication of how big your arms and your calves should be able to get.
0: That's really interesting because when you said it, I was thinking from memory when I last measured those areas they are very similar in size actually. right
1: like you see that in similar. natural lifters very consistently
0: I guess the enhanced guys their necks just start getting crazy I don't, I don't even know because I know some guys who have massive no, the, calves the arms <laughs> and everything
1: get bigger it's uh yeah if basically I'd say you pretty much need gear for most people to get your arms and your calves bigger than your neck right it's it's a little confounded by of course this assumes you don't do that much neck training i guess if you're like a yeah. wrestler you do a lot of neck training maybe the neck could get bigger probably good than the arms and calves um and then there's like if you use gear does the neck grow more than the other muscles i'm not sure of that and it's probably more the traps than the neck
0: yeah well said awesome meno this has been a fantastic chat always enjoy doing these q and a's with you we will no doubt do one uh soon in the future is there anything mm-hmm. any kind of um Updates on your end. I know, obviously, you released your book, and I know that's all been going very well. Um, people have been enjoying that a lot. Actually, I just today, yesterday purchased for the first time some MSG because I realized you don't buy MSG. It's just called, like, flavor enhancer. So I bought some mm-hmm. to try it out just to see what it tastes like more than anything. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that was inspired by you. But, yes, what's, what's up on your end?
1: Is there anything you want to let people know about? I've got uh, just received words. This week that we our diet Break study is getting published with Bill Campbell. Very cool. Uh, that's nice. And then I submitted a review of a systematic review, the first systematic review of carbohydrate requirements for strength training, so I hope to get that published later uh, this year. And then I'm actually thinking of what like, my next big project is going to be. First, I'm finishing the audiobook for my book that should be finished this week, the hardcover cover as well. And then uh, I'm looking for my next big project. Are you doing the audio for that, Menno, for the book? No, no. no. Okay. No, I got a, I got a pro. There's like the perfect intonation and everything. Don't want to hear my, uh, my semi-German, <laughs> Dung- Dunglish, half, uh, British American accents. I say like glass uh Everything else is American. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think yeah, I think generally that makes sense. I quite like that if it was you, but I think for probably for the broader like uh, public, it's probably a good idea to got some yeah, who's and like, just I don't have professional perfectly.
1: studio quality audio.
0: Yes, true. So. Fantastic. Uh, I'll make sure that people can get to your website, and that's all linked below. Make sure your Instagrams there as well, so people can keep up to date with everything there because you're putting out mm-hmm. great information over there as well. And we'll talk to you very soon. Cheers, guys, for right. listening. See you. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, But each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is develop a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche it is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also gonna be Courses on there. Courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We Kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.